All right. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today for a Tuesday episode is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm good. We are recording, I'll, I'll say this so I remember before you for once, um, from PT Knitwear, located at 180 Orchard Street. It's a bookstore and free podcast studio for anyone to use, so please come check it out. Please also remember to rate and review Firewall on uh, Spotify or Stitcher or Apple, and, and thank you for all the Wherever you get your podcast, yeah, what everyone it. says. We've gone from, like, I think we had one Spotify to read, like, 15 now. We had, like, 52 <laughs> Apple reviews, we had 57. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, like, hockey stick venture-like growth, but, you know, uh, I appreciate the people who have uh, who have done that. So, um, so I have to, to alert our listeners, I was in the bookstore on Saturday, and I saw Mari Stoudemire, a former So here's the question. Nick. For you, that's, like, an incredibly thrilling moment. Well, I, you do know, you it's think, I thought you would be excited. What that's percentage why, of our listeners... Do you think know who Amara Starmer is? Well, I don't know how many, but the point is, is I'm that things are happening at PNT Knitwear. They are, and and so on Saturday it was Amara Starmer. Who knows who it could be next, right? Well, it could be it could be Matt Damon. It could be I don't know who who's who's someone who would excite you if like you heard that a certain doesn't have to be a celebrity, but like a certain well known person was in the store. If I had sent question. you their picture, like I sent you the picture of Amara Stoudemire in the store, you'd be like, oh, God, that's awesome. I think right now, it's funny, my celebrities are like these people that I listen to like on podcasts, like behavioral economics and effective altruists. And so if Steve so, Levitt was in yeah, the Yeah, Steve podcast, Levitt would hear that would be cool. Steve or Levitt Stephen is, Dubner is the, or the, Angel Duckworth or Katie Milkman or if Derek Thompson was here or Arthur Brooks. If or, Derek Thompson were here. We that could probably get cool. that. We could probably make that probably happen. Make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That they they seem to be my um, my celebrities. These okay. Days. I now ta- on the subject of subjects that um, listeners may or may not actually care about. We just need to get it out of the way. We need to talk about the Mets last night because yeah. Bradley and I were at the game, and I will say this: it was a, about as depressing a baseball game as I've ever witnessed. I mean, as a I mean, it wasn't depressing for San Diego Padres fans. No, they liked it. But. There was this feeling in the stadium that started early on because the Padres scored in the second inning, right? Yep, so they got two runs in the second inning. Yep. And it was like, it was, it, City Field became like a death cult. Like there was just like, the, this, everybody was depressed. I mean, people actually wasn't because depressed, people were angry. We're still the Mets, right? So, like, my friend Stefan on Sunday, on Saturday, we were watching the game. He said to me, If you know we're going to lose this series, would you rather lose tonight and get it over with or win tonight and play tomorrow, even though you're going to lose? And so I asked the question of every like true Mets fan I knew, and just about universally among the true Mets fans, it was get it over with. Get Let's it over just with. Just lose tonight. Cut off my arm yeah, right now. E- exactly. Like all of the sort of like people were like, "Oh, I'm a Yankees fan, but I don't want to get the Mets." They were like, "You can do it." And all the Mets fans are like, "We're dead." I wasn't like you could do. You, I, I was included in one of Bradley Senzi's sort of. You don't actually know if he's directing a question at you personally, or it's like a question that's like gone out to his like chat sort of universe. Well, I, I don't really use Twitter, so this is. Right. Right, my social it's, media. It's, it's personal Twitter. Yeah. And I, I was like, look, you got to take one game at a time. I mean, whatever. Who even wants yeah, to talk about that? It's over. Nonsense. But, but yeah. here's, here's the larger theme that I wanted to talk about in yeah. this podcast, which covers all aspects of life and not just baseball. Yeah. Although baseball is a useful exercise in it. So it's about optimism versus pessimism. And we're in, like, in terms of, like, the shape of the world now, we're in, would, would you say, a fairly pessimistic zone? Like, yeah, the pessimists sure. have the upper hand. People, yeah, yeah, look at wrong track, right track, or any kind of other polling. Optimism about the economy, about the direction of society.
society is taking about trust in our institutions, all that is way, way down as it continues to be. And I, I was listening to a, a, a podcast with um, Ezra Klein, who's you know one of the, the, the best yeah. in the business, and he had Adam Tooze on, who, the, the economist, who mm-hmm. is like a total rock star these days. Um, and I wonder if he'd ever come to the bookstore. Uh, Adam Tooze probably, he has a lot of books. You think he's been here? I don't know if he's been here, but he, you know what? I'll, I, we should put his poster on the wall like a wanted thing, but instead it's just to recognize <laughs> that he's come here. We're going to have bingo checking off like behavioral economics who have come by this. Well, he's not a behavioral like an economist per se. Economist. Well, he's more of like a big systems guy. Like he, he talks about the, their whole thing was about the, the, the raising of interest rates and the effects that has on countries throughout the, throughout the world and, and the ways in which a lot of the developing countries are really tied to stuff that the, United States does for its sort of own benefit, but have little or no ability to control it, and are just purely like the the, the sort of the tail that's being wagged by the dog. But what was what was interesting was it actually it actually kind of the conversation worked its way around to being sort of optimistic, but it started very dark and pessimistic, and it was like, oh my god, I was listening to it, and I was like, what, is this good for me? To listening to all the terrible shit that no. might happen, and so my my first question to you, and this is, and you can reflect on yeah. the world, the Mets, whatever, is when. Is there a distinction between w- the two? What's that? Is there a distinction between yeah, the world a little and the bit Mets? <laughs> for some people? Um, when, if ever, is pessimism useful? Look, it, it's it's in some ways extremely, arguably, just as useful, if not more useful, than optimism, because effectively. Pessimism is part of our sense of survival that has honed and evolved over millions and millions of years where we are able to avert disaster, avert death um, by thinking, oh, this is probably a bad idea, this is probably not going to work, and choosing not to do something stupid that would have cost you your life or your health or whatever else. So, look, pessimism, generally speaking, the evolutionary impulse to protect yourself, to survive, um, is a strong one and a necessary one. Human beings wouldn't exist without it. At the same time, I think that, and you and I were chatting a little about this over Texas weekend, which is, you know, if you think about all of the different things people could be given as, as a skill set, you could be given intelligence, you could be given charisma, you could be given incredible insight, you could be given incredible persistence, whatever it is. The thing that I think would ultimately be the most valuable to have, and I don't have this, um, but I wish I did, would be a good disposition. You think you don't have a good disposition? I don't think I have a bad disposition, but I don't think that I am... Yeah, I'm not happy-go-lucky. I am not patient. But aren't happy-go-lucky people annoying, though? Not to themselves, man. If 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 the underlying quotient... Again, this is sort of the one of the two themes now of this podcast. One is that policy outputs shaped by political inputs. The second right. is that there's only one life and you have to maximize the happiness quotient of it. Oh my God, let's but, not go. <laughs> but again, if there is only one life and you have to maximize your happiness quotient in it, then someone who is annoying to you but content to themselves, I think is actually doing better than you are. Um, my feeling about happy-go-lucky people when you put it that way, though, is that it's this kind of con or an act or it's not it doesn't it i've rarely met the person That's who's just how cynical kind of, you are well i really can't met, even imagine that you can't even <laughs> you begrudge them their happiness well i'm generally like in a good mood like i'm not you like are, a, you i'm not a mopey person no. like but but i i when i when i see people who are always upbeat like i just don't trust yeah okay them. so that may be but but people who are like call it 80 percent upbeat that's probably the best thing you can be uh, okay, yeah, because 80%. all of the other skills, you still don't have to translate them into an action that brings you happiness. Right, right. Contentment in and of itself is happiness. 
Um, but let's talk about, you're talking about pessimism as a survival skill when maybe there's something you can do about it, right? So if you're like, wow, those big monsters over there are going to come into our camp and, and tear it up. Um, that's maybe a good idea because you could move or, yeah. or acquire a weapon or whatever it is you might need to defend yourself. But what if it's just like like the world economy or the Mets where, where there's like this stuff that's completely out of your control? Well, yeah. Like what, what good is... What good is just feeling like doom is around no, I, the corner? Look, I, I agree. And basically, one, you know, that Alcoholics Anonymous motto of, you know, having the wisdom to control what you can and, or the strength to control what you can and the wisdom to know what you can't. Right. I think that's, that's very accurate, right? Which is like, even though I'm a diehard Mets fan, the reality is I'm not upset. I wasn't upset when we, left the, we were at the game last night because, like, it doesn't really affect me, right? I enjoy watching it. Uh, I would have probably gotten more joy out of it had we advanced further in the playoffs. It certainly would have, so I pre- wish we had won. But, like, is my personal life worse off one way or the other because the Mets lost the wild card yesterday? No, not, not I often feel when, when a team I like loses, I sort of feel a sense of relief that yeah, like I, I don't have to mean. go to the games anymore. I, know, or, like, I was supposed it. to be in Chicago in a couple of weekends and it would have conflicted with the games and I was already sort of dreading the travel changes and now I kind of have to worry about it. But Although, with that said, those are very poor excuses for the fact that we lost. Let's talk about that guy next to us. He did not um, seem to have a good disposition. I mean, and so there was this guy just about three or four rows over from us who was there with his child and some of his friends. So his kid was maybe 10. I mean, like a like a little guy. Yeah. And I don't think I... They packed s- a punch. I mean, that guy was so angry about the Mets. He was he was screaming at the players as they were coming off. Um, he, I can't remember who he was. He was screaming at everybody. Yeah. But like he was but the look on his face was a man in just pure like Rage. emotional freefall. Like it was so weird and and it was I don't know. Like, oh, but what? It, it makes sense, right? Which is like, oh, we know nothing about this man's life, right? For all we know, he's like the most wonderful, charitable, successful you person. Wouldn't. He didn't come off that way. <laughs> um, the guy sitting in row, uh, section 13, row like 11 or 10. Um, <laughs> didn't come off that way. But um, look, look at it this way. I think their loneliness is considered like a true epidemic. Right? I think in the UK, they've actually declared it an epidemic. There are people who are lonely, and I think especially in this country, but probably in, in most countries that have professional sports, one outlet for lonely people is sports, right? And right. they become fanatical about it, um, and they really, all of a sudden, their emotions become totally correlated to the team's success. Just like people get overly invested in partisan politics now because they watch tons of Fox News or MSNBC, or um, you know, pe- people get just... They end up living viscerally through other things, and as a result, the significance. Did you mean of viscerally or vicariously? Maybe you met both. I meant vicariously, actually. Right. Um, but viscerally is interesting. It worked actually too. the way yeah. you used it. Yeah, but I think that's the difference to me. Is like, I love the Mets, but at the end of the day, I got enough shit going on that like they may bring me happiness, but I don't really let them bring me sadness. Oh, that's such sense. a nice way of putting it, Bradley. Um, I think that should be like a. That's it. And the podcast are asking right now. I don't know. I feel like I feel like maybe you need to write a piece about that because it, it, there are a lot of hurting, hurting people. But I think I think your 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 pointing out of loneliness is really it. There is there is there were people there seeking a connection, and for some reason winning creates a sense of community more than losing does. Although yeah. I guess Cubs fans. Well, if had they a good won one last that. night, we would have been 
high-fiving with random strangers on the way out. Right. We would have. And instead, everyone just kind of kept their head down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, there's, look, that's one of the values of, of sports or religion or other things, which is it creates a certain sense of community. and Belonging. And that, belonging, and that, that can be depressing, but it can also be really good. Okay, so a um, couple more questions just on this theme. We'll try to steer this away from the Mets as much as possible, but maybe impossible. Um, who is more useful to listen to, an extreme pessimist or an extreme optimist, or do you just have to sort of tune out both? I mean, to a certain extent, you got to tune out both, but keep in mind what I do for a living, right? I'm a venture capitalist, and I invest in early-stage technology companies, which means, in reality, I'm betting on a person, and I'm betting on their vision and their ideas and their strength of character and their persistence and their ruthlessness and everything else, right? And those people can only succeed with extreme optimism. They have to believe that their crazy fucking idea which is totally different than the way an entire industry works or the economy works or people work or anything else, is so good that based on their own skill set and the strength of the idea, it will succeed, right? So definitionally, from a professional standpoint, I'm dealing with overly optimistic people all the time. And then the question becomes for us, how much do you discount it, right? If you discount it completely, then you shouldn't be a venture capitalist because at the end of the day, you're, you're going to miss those opportunities where the, the people are actually right and they're actually capable of executing it. But if you just believe all of their projections and all of their bullshit, um, the company's probably also going to run into trouble and you're going to have a hard time kind of guiding them if you're on the board or working with them in some way in the right direction. So you, you kind of need a little bit of both. And I would say to take it a step further as, as a manager, you know people's personalities who work for you, right? And in a meeting, you'll get different perspectives and you'll have to sort of discount the person who is way too optimistic and the person who's way too pessimistic, right? Do you hire people generally? Do you like to have a little like bit of pessimism no, in the room? Or no, like I mean, the, the reality is I hate being told what I can and can't do, right? Right. I hate being told how to think. I hate being told that I, I can't accomplish something if I want to accomplish it. Um, and also, by definition, whether it's ventures or strategies or philanthropies or anything else that we're doing, the degree of difficulty of all of our work these days is very high. Um, that's part of what makes it fun and interesting for me. But at the same time, if you were a total pessimist, like you wouldn't even be able to get off the ground here because there's just the, it, there's so much just to even sort of approach and confront the problem that we're trying to solve, let alone solve it. Who is the most optimistic person you ever worked with or have known well, and what did you learn from them? That's a great question. So in a weird way, I would say Rod Blagojevich was because... Um, I think he definitely suffered mental health issues, and I think that had he pled that at his trial, he might have had a shot at actually getting some leniency. But um, I think overall, in a way, he believed in himself and his charisma and that things would kind of work out for him, and they did not <laughs> at all. Um, but, you know, he kind of, like, believed it. At the same time, he also knew that I think he felt fraudulent in many ways as well, um, and I think that made him feel terrible. So um, he, there was optimism there, but I think it was probably, I don't know if it was genuine or if it was sort of like compensation for for other stuff like that. Um, what do I, I mean, there are certain policies. That's a good answer. I mean, yeah. you, don't need, you don't need to go down the yeah, list. I, I mean, it's, it's certainly I feel un, like most unconventional. Of people, keep in mind, I've spent most of my career in New York, so it's a lot of pessimists. <laughs> Why Even is it really like, successful people? But isn't isn't I mean isn't the product, for example, of venture capital and certainly Wall Street, the product is the future, right? You're selling yeah. people the future. Yeah. So you can't, as you're explaining here, like you can't really be a pessimist. So what is it? What is it with the culture of pessimism in New York that resides side by side 
with the industry that is about selling the future? I think it's partly that it goes broader than the professional itself, which is to live in New York City is to sacrifice and is to compromise, right? You and I are looking out right now. They just cleaned up the trash, by the way, yeah, outside our window They here. did, but there's still plenty of trash, and it's pretty dirty, and we've seen multiple crimes in, in front of us <laughs> in the last week or so, and yet neither of us would want to live anywhere else. But the point is, to be a New Yorker means you are accepting and living with a lot of things that are considered suboptimal, and I think as a result, you have to be able to weigh all of the good, all the bad, almost instantaneously and make decisions. And I think that requires some dose of pessimism to do that effectively. Um, one more question on this theme, and then we're gonna, gonna go through a, a whole bunch pivot. of different subjects. Yeah. Um, if you look back at your life, um, can you think of moments when you were either particularly optimistic or pessimistic, like out of your norms? Um, and to what extent were those feelings borne out by future events? Well. It's interesting. The question is, let me reinterpret that question in a way okay. that I think may be a little different, but more interesting, which is, when is it good to not know what you don't know, right? Um, and there are times, at least in my career, where we were able to accomplish things that we should not have been able to accomplish, but because I was so young and naive, I didn't know that you couldn't, right? So like when I was in Illinois, you know, we did all kinds of major policy changes, budgetary changes, things like that. That if I were a little more seasoned, I would be like, there's no fucking way any of this can pass. But because I didn't know better, sometimes you just sort of throw the dice and it works. At the same time, when you don't know better, um, you can also really lose. So, for example, I think as listeners know, I had funded and created personally a tele-religion company called Exalt in the last couple of years. Um, Jordan was like, fun stuff and not going to invest in this. I don't think it's a good idea. I was convinced that it was. I put a bunch of my own money into it. And it went out of business this summer, right? I didn't know what I didn't know. And I made a lot of, you know, expensive mistakes as a result. So, you know, it's tricky. It's not only do you need to know what you don't know, but also sometimes know that it's good that you don't know what you don't know. But you have to be able to know the distinction in real time. And that's really difficult. Um, all right. You want to talk about this is sort of the, the hard pivot moment. or It's not that hard pivot. But yeah. um, uh, you wrote two pieces last week. We should just mention both of them. Sure. Um, the first one, how the plaintiff's bar could fix the internet. Mm -hmm. um, that was built around the Supreme Court uh, case. They're going to hear Gonzalez v. Google. You want to just run through that quickly? Yeah, so take, look, I mean, listeners are sick of hearing me talk about repealing Section 230. But, but the, the point here is we've talked a lot on this podcast about some tech regulations that I strongly believe need to happen. One is removing the liability protection that platforms have for the content posted by their users. That's Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act. One is antitrust laws being stronger to go after big monopolistic tech companies like Google or Apple or Amazon, whoever it is. Um, third would be a national privacy framework um, that starts to give people uh, the ability to kind of understand and own their own data better. So those are all things that I have been kind of calling for for quite a while. Section 230 is an issue that actually repealing it has bipartisan support both Trump and Biden in the 2020 campaign both campaigned on this notion. Um, a court case, uh, Gonzalez v. Google, was accepted to be heard by the Supreme Court last week. Um, it will challenge the limits of Section 230 and how far a platform like Google is able to go to not have to incur any responsibility or liability for what its users post. Um, in this case, it involves sort of cons the, the conception of anti-conservative bias by Google, which you know may not be entirely untrue. Um, I don't know that the court's going to strike down Section 230. Um, I'm not even sure that they necessarily could, based on the, the facts of this case, as I understand them. But in a weird way, if you assume that the House is going to flip, and I think the Senate's 
pretty good shot that's going to flip too. If the courts tell conservatives, screw you, no, you don't, you won't get protection through this venue, then arguably that becomes an incentive for a Republican Congress to say, well, we'll do it legislatively. And Biden, who just wants some wins on tech regulation, could sort of, if, if he's willing to say, we support the same goal for very different reasons, but we support the same goal and we'll let each other live with that as mm-hmm. opposed to like trying to be an asshole about it, um, then I think Biden could sort of guide it along to a victory. So either way, if, if the court does um, strike down Texas of 230, that would be great. If the court affirms it, but it sparks the Republican Congress anew to action, um, that could be great, too. So I'm excited about it. Um, I wrote a piece that I run this week in Law 360, which is a you know the legal blog. And the point I was making specifically, and it's the only time I've ever written for them, was that I wanted to say to the plaintiff's bar directly, hey, guys, this is your opportunity, right? You have the This ability. is the other piece you wrote. The, this the, is the, the, the law. An, the antitrust piece. No, no. This is the law piece where, where about— about 2.30, which okay. is the point of the piece is I to see. say to the antitrust, to the plaintiff's bar, who otherwise I don't really have a voice to necessarily, like, but I know they read this, because my friend Garrett, who's a plaintiff's lawyer, said, what are people in your industry reading? He said, well, 360. Look, guys, you have a tremendous opportunity here, both morally and financially, uh, and they line up perfectly, which is very rare and incredibly lucky when they do. Um, you need to drive the shit out of this issue. Um, that was the point of the the Law 360 piece. I see. And and how does that relate to the antitrust piece you wrote? Because is that's that's not an opportunity for the plaintiffs bar as as you see it. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, look, there maybe you could try to do like a mass tort against a Google or someone like that. But I think that overall, that's more about the FTC having the resources and means to go after uh, a giant oligarchic monopolistic tech company like Facebook or something like that. So I think it's less the bills that have been advancing uh, in both now House and Senate, both bipartisan ways, are basically all about giving more tools to the FTC and the Justice Department to take on these types of cases. Do you feel like we're either at or nearing an inflection point where people really just don't fear big tech the way they did, that they that the, the, the companies, both in terms of their business performance, in terms of their strategy, in terms of their just general profile don't look sort of so unbeatable and omnipotent. I mean, I, I was thinking, I was thinking that you know this is uh, from a from a whole different area of, of the business world. But you know, like Harvey Weinstein was this total monster out there in the world for years and years and years, and almost everybody in Hollywood knew it. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until he was kind of old and and his sort of business was failing that like suddenly the the floodgates opened and and all the stories came out about you know what a yeah. what an asshole he really is, and. I feel like I feel like that's a, like a, an example of like where someone's sort of business power, you know, gives them a cover um, from stuff that should happen. Um, and and that that for example, so you the Apples, the Facebooks, the Amazons. You're saying because individuals in our society tend to have the ability to become larger than life, they are able to delay a lot of necessary personal and professional regulation. Yeah, consequences. And yeah, sure. I mean, look at look at Elon Musk, right? I mean, I think Elon understands that if he keeps just sort of rolling the dice in a really exciting way, rather than anyone looking at like, hey, did you actually come through on these other five things that you promised? The circus just goes on, you know. And like, he he's good at that. Trump is 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 really good at that. Um, and so, 
yeah, there are people who certainly use their own larger than life status. But you know, it's interesting. So like take Apple, right? So Steve Jobs was larger than life, right? Like he genuinely, in most more ways positive than negative, didn't really change the world. Tim Cook is an excellent CEO. He's not larger than life, but what he's done, very intelligently, I would argue, is built out a position and reputation for himself that I don't think is even necessarily accurate, which is this great defender and believer in privacy, right? I think Apple, you know, uses your abuses your privacy as much as anybody, but he has developed this shtick about he's how he's Mr. Privacy. And as a result, he's using that narrative, that reputation to avoid necessary regulation for Apple. Right. It's interesting. So I, I guess the, the 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 point was is like, are we at uh, that? Uh, use this example that maybe is confusing people, but are we at a point where the tech companies aren't so fearsome anymore? So that no, and so that this, this is the is moment. Fucking fearsome, man. Like they're just as powerful as ever. And like part of the the thing when I wrote that the TechCrunch piece was like, look, this happens all the time. Which is you know we sit we get pitched by a startup. And one of the questions that goes in the back of my mind very quickly is, could Google do this? Could Amazon do this? Could Facebook could do this? Could you know uh, Microsoft do this? Whoever it is. And if the answer to that is yes, which is frequently the case, because they're so big and they're so rich and they're so powerful, it's, well, would they likely buy whatever it is that the startup is, is building, or would they just do it themselves? And most of the time, the answer is they would just do it themselves. So once you're like, well, you know, uh, Google could do this, or you know, Facebook could do this, and they don't need to buy your company, then we just pass on the Series A, the seeds investment. But as a result, sometimes we are definitely passing on ideas and founders that could positively disrupt the current approach to social media, that could positively disrupt the, the current platforms. And yet we'll never know because the part the companies are so big and so powerful that to make a smart investment decision is not to bet against them. Uh, you mentioned Elon Musk uh, last week, the news that tore apart the internet uh, was that he was in fact going to go ahead with his purchase of uh, Twitter. We'll see if that actually happens or not. But what's your uh, evolving position on that? Do you? I know you're not a fan of Twitter. I know you I'm not a fan it. of Twitter. I think it's highly societally destructive and in some ways maybe designed to be the most societally destructive of all the platforms, number one. Number two, I had initially given Elon, I think, a little more credit when the first idea first came out, which was, and if you remember this, my thesis was, the man is exponentially richer than he should be because his company, Tesla, is so wildly overvalued on the public markets that like, whereas what might be uh, normally an 80 or $100 billion valuation, I haven't checked the market cap in a while, is 700, 600, 800 billion dollars, and that's purely because of retail investors who live under the cult of Elon. So my initial thesis was, oh, this is really smart. He's going to buy the means of production, right? He's going to buy the pixie dust. And as a result, he can always kind of keep spreading it around so that his companies, Tesla and SpaceX and X, seem a lot more valuable and exciting and useful than they actually are. And as a result, the spread, even if he spends $50 you know, billion or whatever it is on Twitter, um, if, if he's able to increase his net worth by hundreds of billions um, because of the perception of his companies and the reality of his companies, that would be worth it. So that's why I initially thought he was doing it. I think it became clear that that wasn't why he was doing it. Uh, I'm not sure he even knows why he was doing it other than we're talking about him right now. And I think that for for Elon, uh, it does seem like he's a lot like politicians, which is he would rather us be talking about him or not. And in a perfect world, talking about him in a praiseworthy way for good things that he did. But if the choice is bad attention or no attention, he'll seems like he'll pick bad attention every time. 
Um, you sent me a couple of articles, uh, both of which were a little bit off topic for, for our usual exchanges. Um, one was uh, an article about uh, Emmanuel Macron's organization of the European political community, which is a group of 44, I guess all the 44 nations of Europe in an attempt to sort of like look at the, uh, the situation with Ukraine, Russia, energy and security Trump. stuff that comes up in a more broad-based, less, you know, outside the framework of the EU, but, uh, but still with some of the yeah, same. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was great simply because, one, I like when people step up and try to do stuff. Right. Um, but, but two, look, Trump wasn't entirely wrong when he said that the U.S.'s role in NATO is, is wildly uh, unfair, right? That we just are basically we disproportionally, basically yeah. disproportionately pay for and run the whole fucking thing. And wealthy countries in Europe who clearly could afford their dues, clearly could afford to shoulder more of the burden, don't bother to do so because they know that the U.S. is picking up the difference. So the idea of a little bit of Europe saying, hey, rather than just relying on this power across the Atlantic to bail us out like we did in World War I and we did in World War II, um, and effectively were the ones probably preventing the Ukraine from getting a lot worse a lot faster, um, it would be nice to see Europe sort of assume some responsibility for its own actions and and fund its own decisions and actually, you know, not just rely off of the generosity of the U.S. taxpayer. Um, Republican Senator Ben Sass from uh, from Nebraska is leaving the Senate to take over the University of Florida presidency. Um, why is that interesting? That was a smart move. Important? Well, well, it's not important at all. But um, <laughs> I always thought he was an interesting guy and that he was a little. Uh, a little different than your average sort of Senate Republican, more willing to sort of say what he thinks, even though it was controversial, a little more intellectually honest. Um, so I always liked that about him. But I think the, the thing really was, if your goal is to be president, which I'm sure that's Ben Sass's goal, and you are a conservative, but you're sort of an unorthodox free thinker, you're not really a Trumper per se, and he voted uh, for impeachment, um, does that make him a dead duck, basically, it in re-election? No, I, I don't. I didn't get the sense from any of the articles that they didn't think he would have won re-election if had had he done it. But I think it was effectively that he was interested in this purgatory, where the Republican Party is going through all kinds of civil warfare um, to determine whether it's all about Trump or back to sort of pro-business or anything else, or it's just super religious, right? And. In a weird way, if your goal is to become president, he's already been a U.S. senator. He has whatever benefit that qualification brings, if any. Um, and now I think as a university president, he actually can kind of take a step out of the cesspool, reposition himself however he wants, and then when the smoke clears and things change, he can jump back in. Um, so I thought it was a politically smart move, and part of what makes Ben Sass impressive is he does things for personal political reasons that come off as a little more principled, right? Um, not unlike how um, the politics or what drove the Biden administration's decision last week to announce that they were going to look at descheduling cannabis as a Schedule One drug. And what was interesting to me about that is, uh, yes, of course, I support legalizing cannabis, I support legalizing most drugs, um, and we've talked about this podcast quite a bit. But what surprised me um, a lot about it was the internal polling in the White House must be fucking terrible, right? Because Pelosi's already basically seated the House, and I think this may mean that they think the Senate's gone too, because um, Biden has not been a pro-weed guy. He's, you know, fucking old, man, and like, you know, from <laughs> Delaware and Scranton, and he sees marijuana as a gateway drug, and his son Hunter was a, a drug addict, maybe still is, and so it wasn't, you know, like he was going to be moving quickly or anyone thought 
uh, on the issue of using administrative power to change how marijuana is regulated. Um, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they announced that they are basically asking the uh, Justice Department to look at taking off Schedule 1, and they're prov- providing pardons to people who were convicted of various offenses due to due to cannabis. Um, it must and, be crazy if you're in jail on some weird little pot charge and you see what's going on in for, the world. For, oh, for sure. So I, I agree with everything they're doing, but I think that politically, if, if they had at least said to me, what will have the best shot at generating some new incremental turnout and money in the general elections in six weeks, I wouldn't have said weed, not, not because I don't agree with what they're doing, but... The people who would come out to vote on that issue almost all live in states where weed is already recreationally legal. If you already have a right, just because someone else is reinforcing your right to it, that's not going to change your voting behavior, right? So then the other question is like, okay, well, how about all the families, the people who were pardoned, won't they be really grateful? And maybe so, but I think it's it's a longer organizing process to really get them out than the six weeks right, that you ton have. Of, ton of voters and, right there. And just generally speaking, I remember like looking at how to organize charter school parents, and just once you took out people who were not citizens or were disenfranchised because of incarceration or something else, it was a very, very small group of people to work with, so I don't think that much benefit there either. And it's not really a community that's going to shower the Biden administration with money because, you know, this is sort of an old issue and they've got all their political alliances already. And I think that ultimately, if you were the White House and you wanted to throw a curveball and try to pick up some unexpected pockets of support in the next six weeks, I would have gone crypto, man. I would have come up with some very, very pro-crypto regulation like CFTC will oversee you. Some pro-crypto? Yeah. And just for because you get a lot of money, like what would the yeah you get money and any voters you get are new voters, right? So I would say the vast majority of of Bitcoin maximalist maxis and sort of all the hardcore crypto believers are not regular voters at all. Um, so if they were to turn out because they liked whatever thing you did, those are net new votes, and they have money, right? So I just think that like it, the thing I don't like about the the we thing is just not I like what they did, but I just. If you're going to do something solely for political reasons, which I accept is the entire premise of this podcast, <laughs> at, at least f- generate some real political benefit, right? Like, I just didn't get how they managed to, like, do something that's going to achieve them nothing and at the same time, like, just to see what the worst of all worlds. So, and, and there seems to be nothing moving on the crypto stuff. That would be very unusual for, for that to come out between now. Well, yeah, but except that... The executive orders that Biden did issue around crypto and digital assets earlier this year very much did sort of promote the supremacy of uh, the Treasury to dictate crypto regulation, which means just based on those principles, they could have made a substantive rule on crypto regulation. Or maybe Congress would have said, no, 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 that's for us to decide. Or maybe someone would have gone to court to say they overstepped their bounds here. But, you know, they could have done something dramatic on crypto and they didn't. And by the way, it's not mutually exclusive with weed. I just think that, like, it's another example of this White House in many ways just fucking living in the past, you know? And, like, I don't think an issue as old as weed is going to meaningfully impact the trajectory of of half a dozen Senate races in six weeks. Um, Okay, we're going to do one more thing here. Um, uh, Joshua Cohen, uh, terrific uh, novelist. Uh, has a has a review of Jared Kushner's book in New York Review of Books, which yeah. I thought was great because cool. it f- performed the function of not having to actually read Jared Kushner's book, which I would definitely not do anyway. Um, 
But there's a little anecdote in there. I want to read you the anecdote, and okay. then I want you to tell me whether you think it's true or false. Like, is this like a bullshit? Like, oh, it's about how lovely Kushner singing voices. No, is that in the book too? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's random. He kind of has that like angelic face. choir boy, yeah. Like maybe, but like that like sort of Shiva choir boy. Or but what about what? What are those? Um, like a eunuch, like a like when they're really oh, high yeah. pitched, like, like that. Accordion. You think he's a eunuch? Yeah, I do. Huh. <laughs> so this would be like QAnon, right? Jared Kushner is a eunuch. Wow. Like that's Could we start that? Like, like, uh, like really try to get the my, my guess is that the internet you going on that. Could access the dark web and type in Jared Kushner eunuch, shit would probably come up. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I doubt we're the first. We, to we this. didn't get there first. Oh, no, it's so sad. So. Everything's been done and said. Everything. Okay, so you ready? This is this is the line from Joshua yeah. Kush- Joshua Joshua Kushner, Joshua Cohen's review in New York Review Books. After Melania, after Melania and Michelle completed their obligatory exercise in sexism open house tour at the White House when Trump went to visit yeah. Obama at the White House right before they took over, and Trump and Obama's one-on-one was over, at which point, uh, at which Obama apparently warned Trump not to hire General Michael Flynn as national security advisor, the Trump entourage was making its way back to the SUV scrum when Obama took Kushner aside under the colonnade and asked, have you and Ivanka decided if you are coming to Washington? When Kushner hesitated, Obama delivered the pitch as if straight from NPR or maybe my parents, you should definitely come. You would do a lot of good here. Yeah. Do you think, do you think Obama really did that? The, the point is kind of like, no, hey, I, I realize I, you're going to save I, the— I get it. So on one right. hand, you would say, no, this is just classic Jared Kushner, mainly seemingly the lucky sperm club of a rich real estate developer who's just sort of failed up his entire life and has never accomplished anything, making himself seem more um, more important yet again. And look, in a sort of a no-lose situation, because if Obama comes out and denies it, it just drives lots of free attention to the book. That's good for him. Obama has not yet denied it, as right. of. I think, but maybe because it's not, maybe because it's true, or maybe because they're just like all, well, I don't want to fucking help this guy, right? So like, either way, but, but let's just say for sake of argument that it is true, yeah, I mean, I think that for a long time during Trump, really till almost the very end, there was still this thought that there was a faction inside the administration that could be a more moderate voice, and that if they were empowered, that would do better. It, it seemed like John Kelly saw his entire job as chief of staff is just to try to prevent the absolute worst shit from happening. Um, uh, Miles uh, Taylor, who's a, a guy I'm friendly with, who's been working on creating the Forward Party. He's the one that wrote that anonymous piece in the New York Times talking about resistance from inside the administration. He was the chief of staff at Homeland Security at the time. So, you know, there was an effort to do that, and I don't think it's all um, useless. And so I'm not sure that it's all bad or wrong. But at the same time, um, seeing Jared and Ivanka as meaningfully better than the rest of them, I think, is is questionable. Yes, they weren't quite but you believe nuts. So you believe the story or you don't believe the story? Sh- sure, because it seems it. the kind of thing that can happen. I just don't know. I think it's less significant than you do, which means that why do the listeners have to listen to us apocalypse for seven minutes? I think that ultimately concluded it's not significant in the first place. <laughs> well, that's the nature of the podcast. We go, we, we, it's trial and error. Bro. All right, you um, can get a free coffee. Come okay. to okay. you get a, you get a You get a free coffee if you listen to this point and, and you survive Bradley's... Um, Pessimism. See, his, I, was, his, I was bringing it all the way back around. 
It's pessimism. October 15th, which is Saturday, I think, Andrew Kurtzman is in, the, is in P&T Knitwear to talk about his new biography of Giuliani. Yep. He's being interviewed by our friend Adam DeGurney of the New York Times. Yep. Uh, so look out for that and look out for other events at uh, P&T. There's like an incredible kind of schedule of them. So it's definitely worth keeping track of. And one more question. Sorry. Yeah. Um, the, the Nobel Prize winner in literature, Annie Ernaud, read anything of hers? Going to read anything of hers? What's her name? Annie Ernaud. Never heard of her. Really? Even after she won the Nobel Prize, you didn't? I saw this morning that Ben Bernanke and some other guys won the Nobel Prize in economics. But it is amazing to me. Uh, I was talking to my political consultant group about this recently where, like, the National Book Award nominees came out or something like that. And this is a group of, like, five very, very well-read people, one of whom owns a bookstore, two of whom created the Gotham Book Prize together. None of us had read anything on the long list <laughs> for fiction or, like, nonfiction. And it was just like, holy shit, like, how... The, if 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 the sort of coastal elite like us considers ourselves far too sort of, you know, Archie Bunker mainstream for this stuff, like who the <laughs> fuck is their audience, you know? I mean, because we're like sitting here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in a fucking pretentious bookstore, like... Like, if we're not going to fucking be the ones who are like, oh, yes, you know, Kierkegaard's this. Um, like, who, who will, right? right? What, the My Struggle guys just has, like, 18 different books on the short list? Yeah. Did yeah. you read that? No. Me either. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I tried. You know, um, didn't, yeah. didn't hang with it. Yeah. Um, all right, Bradley, Till next week. All right, see you, man. Bye.